Hello and welcome to the 30 Minute CMO Podcast. My name is Gorsha Hucho and I'm joined by my friend and partner, Alex McNamara. Today's episode is our traditional Ed Talk segment where we discuss news and happenings in marketing and in the world's adjacent to marketing. Hey Alex, it's good to see you again. Good to see you too. Good evening. How are you? Good evening. Last time was morning, this time was evening. Back to our know, regularly just... scheduled programming. <laughs> well, now we can have proper uh, uh, conversation juice. I've had this. This is, a, this is a good one. This is a new one my uncle-in-law got. It's from Sasquatch Brewing in Portland, Oregon. It's called Mouth Pillow. It's a hazy IPA, and apparently mouth it, pillow. your mouth has to do so much work that it needs a pillow afterwards. And it's really delicious. Apparently, it's all wow. orange juice on the nose. It's it's very good. It's very very creamy as well, actually. I feel like it kind of is supposed to punch you a little bit in the face with a citrus punch, right? Yeah, but I haven't. I I've had more bitter, stronger IPAs than this one, and this feels very soft and and smooth. Well, guess who uh, jumped on the Hoplark subscription train? Oh, you did? This guy. You did? I did. Oh, yeah. I just got I just got my first box today. And, uh, I should have I sent am... you my promo code. Oh, is there such a thing? <laughs> I don't think so, but well, there should be. Anyway, it is uh, nice. I am uh, currently drinking this because I have some hopes of maybe working out a little bit afterwards, but we shall see. Anyway. Um, anyway. I think uh, where we'll start today is with a review of some good ads. Uh, there were a couple of good ads that we've spotted over the last few weeks that I I feel like we should just touch on. Uh, and the first one is just an absolutely mind-boggling, mind-blowing ad for the Emirates airline. Um, yes. Which uh, we'll link to in our on our website. But um, do you want to describe the ad? Because it is, I still watch it and I still get like, I don't know, some combination of like goosebumps and like the desire to c- close my eyes. Yeah, no. So so basically, it's um, uh, a close-up, you know, top half of someone's body of um, American, uh, an Emirates um, uh, air stewardess. And she has, a, you know, the, the, the paper in front of her with words on it. And she is tending a message by moving some of the, the words from front to back. And like as, a lo- a, like Love Actually type of scene, right? Yeah, like Love Actually type of thing. And as... As she's moving that, the camera pans out, and you're like, "Okay, this is this is fine, I guess." And and it keeps panning out, it keeps panning out, and as it gets to the end of the card shuffle, it zooms out, and you suddenly realize the whole ad was filmed at the top of the tallest building in the world, and it's just her, Tom Cruise style Mission Impossible, but it's this lady stood on top of the Burj Khalifa. And it is amazing, and it, it is it, it comes out of nowhere. It's absolutely brilliant, absolutely yeah. brilliant. The element of surprise is uh, definitely like present, and I I have to say that I, the ad was in celebration, or I guess as Emirates called it, in celebration of um, Dubai or the United Arab Emirates being removed from the Amber list um, for flights into the UK. So just for that, they filmed it, and uh, they used. Um, a skydiver, a professional skydiver who, you know, she dressed as a 
Emirates crew member and uh, stood on top of that building. And just the effect is, is just absolutely insane. Um, so I thought it was really, really well done. Um, something that wasn't really meant as a master brand campaign or of, of any kind, but it, it definitely caught the uh, imagination of a lot of people. I mean, I think on YouTube, on the official Emirates channel, it has 4 million plays already and countless more, I'm sure, on social media. It was, it was, it was, it was great. It was so unexpected. It was such a nice, like you said, it wasn't like a big brand campaign. It was just like a social post essentially. Um, and it was great. And then someone who works in production in Dubai, um, said some of her friends were the ones that worked on the shoot and rigged her in. Apparently it's a very long climb up to the top, which I do not doubt. Uh, so it was it was it was really good it was just such a great it was just such a great like unexpected twist to it yeah so well done emirates i feel like they do a decent job of doing ads in general um but two well thumbs up on this one two thumbs up i keep watching it i love it um the next one that i really <laughs> got a great chuckle out of is is a lot is a lot more tactical i guess um the city of los angeles uh, posted a job posting on their Twitter account and on you know various job boards, and it was it was a job posting meant to like recruit a graphic designer into into like the city of LA's kind of administration, but they drew it in paint in MS yeah. Paint, and it's like this just it's like this awful like doodle scribble thing where they said you know the city of Los Angeles is now hiring graphic designers, but it looked like a child drew it. It's just it's it's so cool. It's so cute and cool and kind of like right on the nose. It's it is absolutely amazing. It's just like I like even they have the 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 seal of L.A. City of pixelated. Los Angeles is pixelated and it's squashed and yeah. like none of not there's no kerning at all. It is it is it's just like it's it's amazing it's just like we know we don't have a graphics team here's our attempt and i i know it's not real it's not someone who's actually trying to make it look good but it's like it's just the idea that someone has tried to make it look like a graphic designer and is like we need a graphic designer like it's it's so fun it's so yeah. fun i really really love it look yeah. at us look at us like thumbs upping ads this week yeah, this is great. I mean, you know what? Good work is good work, and that's all I have good to say. Good work is good work. Exactly. Good work is good work. No, I thought it was, it was really good. Thank you for sharing that. Speaking of work, um, do you remember how all these companies were planning for September to be the official back in the office for the masses? I remember. Uh, yeah, I remember that. The, the Googles and Facebooks and everyone else just kind of signaling <laughs> mm-hmm. that September was going to be. Well, guess what? Delta guess happened. what? What? Oh, no. Delta happened. Yeah. And then? And then and, and then people got sick and uh, mm-hmm. and now and, and now it's sort of like this uh, crazy state where mm-hmm. I feel like uh, everyone is still kind of putting on a brave face, but uh, all these uh, plans unceremoniously are being pushed back infinitely. Um, I read that uh, some companies are pushing them back to January; others are pushing them back without a date. Um, and I wanted to kind of pose a couple of different questions um, for us to discuss. When it comes to marketing specifically and the sort of the advertising client relationship, I know it sort of had to exist over Zoom. Uh, do you think that as we maybe settle in for the long haul with this, um, there are changes uh, to the dynamics of these relationships between clients and agencies where you aren't like, not only are clients and agencies not able to see one another, but like 
the client teams aren't able to work with one another collaboratively as collaboratively the agency yeah. teams aren't able to do like what does that do to the to the nurturing of the relationship which historically has relied a lot on in-person kind of schmoozing eventing uh workshops what are your thoughts i think i think it's a really tricky one because we've we've shown that we can build relationships um through video conferencing and i feel like you can maintain relationships you have to work much harder to do that though on a on a daily basis and i find myself very much by the time five o'clock comes around i'm really i'm really really tired because you've had to do so much more effort in communicating with people both through voice through video through chat like you really have to put a lot of effort into it. it's not just as easy as swinging by someone's desk and getting that you know chatting for five minutes and getting stuff squared mm-hmm. away um but at the same time you really build strong relationships with people in person and i feel like it, it in in england what i found was you would do a lot of stuff in person because all of those concentration of both agencies production companies the agency uh, you know adjoinments um Mm. in london and a lot of the clients were in london or they were in england not too far away um some were you know in europe and again that's not too far away so you'd have a lot of in-person stuff happening all the time when i moved here i was working a lot with remote teams who were you know they may have been in the same place but they were you know two hour drive away or they were in new york and i was on in sf or la and you would have to do that um remotely anyway so i feel like yes it's it's new but also it's not new because of just how big the u.s is and i feel like a lot of you know we'd have to fly a lot so so you have that but i think you can you can build relationships i think in person and like having the meeting and the in-between meetings conversations you miss out on the when you finish a presentation walking out of the room and having lunch or having coffee or finish the workshop and going for dinner like you you build those relationships outside of the one hour allocation that you have of a of a meeting or of a interaction so i feel like yes we are missing out but i feel like you can also do a lot and you have to try harder to maintain a level which would have been really easy in person yeah i um i'm i'm sort of in an environment right now where we're sort of half and half um and i'm seeing this kind of play out um firsthand a little bit more the people who are remote um i think get to participate uh as much as if they were in person in the allocated time slots Mm -hmm. but the people who are in person get the benefit of five minutes before, five minutes after, you know? Yeah. And man, there is so much value in the five minutes before, five minutes after type of thing. You know, like yeah. there's there's generally the the debrief. There is kind of like uh, maybe someone was uh, not brave enough to voice an idea in a formal meeting that they want to slide in um, afterwards. And that might spark a conversation or a subsequent set of conversations. And I feel that this level of nuance is going to be uh missed um yeah and uh you know i i hear you on on maintaining relationships i'm not so sure that building the relationships part is going to be as um as straightforward um you know if you're if you're an agency and you just want a piece of client business or vice versa if you're a client and you're just onboarding an agency um 
there's going to be it's going to be tough uh breaking dice you know you're seeing people in their professional state you're not really seeing them for who they are maybe as much yeah. and I, you know the argument could be made that you're seeing people at their home and so maybe their a little bit of a facade is off anyway so i think it's going to be a little hard but you know um, what I am kind of thinking about is also, will this reinforce the notion that we're now remote forever? And I heard the very interesting kind of conversation on another show where they basically said that, you know, we develop, we, we as humans develop muscle memory. Um, and the longer something like this continues to uh, exist, the longer we're going to work in a remote situation, the more likely we are to maintain that and continue to do it in perpetuity, even if the circumstances change. Um, and this means that we're going to have to figure all the things that we're just talking about out. It also really means that the ecosystem that you actually touched on, you know, everyone kind of clustered around in the same part of town in London or in New York. Um, it's not just the agency and the production company uh, or sometimes even like the clients themselves, you know, like um, concentrated in Manhattan or concentrated in some parts of London. It's also like that ecosystem that that grew up around that, you know, the bars mm -hmm. and pubs, the restaurant that catered to business lunches, the the various things that 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 were there to uh, to support the informal part of um, yeah. of the clustering, all of that is going to be all of that is going to be potentially gone, um, and so th if that's gone, is there is there a catch twenty two of you know well that doesn't exist anymore, therefore there there's less appeal to come back to the old to the old ways because. I won't have all of those things anymore, you know, and so yeah. I, I do wonder if this is uh, if this is going to continue to go on for another six or eight or twelve months. If there is a way back, I used to think that I, there was a way back. I'm not sure I if think, there will be. I think there is. I don't think. I mean, I've 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 seen a lot of stuff of like remote forever will never go back to the office, and I think that is that's not what people want. People like being remote because you can get more work done because you're not constantly distracted, and I I feel that for sure. But like, I would love to be back in the office with people and sitting in a room and just like tr talking through problems. Like, I had a I had a good. I used the new Slack feature Huddle with with a with a guy yesterday. We chatted for forty five minutes whilst I had a whiteboard scribbling away. But that, you know, and that kind of replicated the informal problem solving you would have when you would walk into an office. Like we used to do this all the time. I come into a room with a problem and a solution, and we would whiteboard. And we're yeah. trying to figure it out like that, that sort of like informal uh, participation was really valuable. And like you said, the pre and post meeting, like you can, you can change a meeting as you walk in or as you walk out with a comment to someone who is, who is in charge or leading or influential and yeah. changing how they think about it. And yeah. you don't do that. You can't do that in, in front of everyone, but you know, some people don't want to do that, or you can't do that. I remember when I was working with a with a car brand in London, you would have a meeting, and then after the meeting, you would have two people um, have a conversation, and then that would be the actual meeting. So you'd have all of this, like, and I feel that's kind of the same here. Um, what the one thing that I'm most worried about, not worried about, most interested to see what happens is people who join companies remote and are remote. Um, when the people go back into the office, what happens to the remote people? And as a remote person myself, I think missing out on those pre and post meetings, especially if it's a really tough meeting where you have to deliver bad news or you have to have a discussion that's not great or you have to try and 
change the course of something and people feel frustrated after the meeting you're usually available for a, a chat you can hang out in the meeting room for a bit you won't do that if you're remote like you turn the turn the conference off and then you're in your bedroom or your study or your office and you have no idea what's happening you can't read the room you can't read the sentiment uh, and unless you have a, a a really trusted person down there who's texting you what's going on you can't manage the fallout if there is fallout and then on the flip side you can't manage the the jubilation and you can't celebrate with the people that you work really hard with when things do go really well and you have to equally, deliver great news equally as important equally as important yeah. yeah and uh and it's hard it's hard to feel the energy of of a room that um shares those emotions when you're remote um and i've been like i yeah. said i i've been on the <laughs> On, on in, the, in the front row kind of getting a sense of like what that looks like and um, there's there's a lot of value in in being there in person Co- companies will have to come up with these hybrid cultures not just ways of working but cultures and yeah. um, i think give employees resources if they truly believe in the hybrid workforce um to 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 participate in more ways than just dial into the meeting i'm yeah. personally a firm believer in turning the camera on because i feel like with people dialed into a conference everyone has their cameras off a whole lot of things uh, get missed out. And I know the reasons people keep their cameras off and I'm sympathetic to that. But again, like that is just something that companies need to think really, really hard about and set some ground rules and enable their employees as well. I think I remember one one friend of mine, he was remote about five years ago. And I think he was in he was in SF and his, his team was in Dallas or something. It was like a, a time zone difference. And he was like very, very remote before everyone was comfortable being remote and he had an ipad um next to his desk like basically like mounted to the wall and in the office there was another ipad on a desk and it was like basically it was they were both on all the time so anyone could just walk over to the ipad on the desk and be like oh hey mate have you do you know this thing or have you talked to that person about something And and you had that almost like real time you know drop by someone's desk you could almost participate in the office banter like you mm-hmm. had that live connection um turn me around I turn was... me around i, I don't know what's, yeah. what's going on <laughs> yeah <laughs> which i thought was really interesting and i thought was really cool i mean the fact having a an ipad points at you all day um sounds awful but then again people are in offices and people are looking at you all day so it's kind of the same thing i guess so yeah yeah um anyway um I guess we'll see what happens. Uh, next, uh, next one I want to pose to you, question-wise: uh, Do we need more new agencies? Yes, yes. We always we need do. new agencies. So many. Always. I mean, we don't have enough, Gorsha. We don't have enough agencies yet. I think, I think we need more agencies. I think the more agencies there are, the the better the work gets. I think is is yeah. Uh, yeah. Quantity over quality. Yeah. Quantity um, over quality. All the, <laughs> <laughs> all, all in jest, of course, but you, I, I, you know why I'm asking this question. I, I, I do. And this, is, and, this is, and this is just probably the most recent example, but the former CEO of 360i, a big agency um, that Denso owns, um, well, uh, he's uh, starting a new agency. It's based in Atlanta. It's, co- it's uh, called Acadia, and uh, it's focused on the mid-market. So companies that maybe can't afford the WPPs and Densos of the world, but are um, big enough to, you know, have an agency. And, um, my question is, you know, 
are they really is are they really differentiated is there is there anything to differentiate yourself on at this point is there really something that someone isn't doing um or is it just a Rolodex play where it's someone saying, you know what, I've got a bunch of contacts. I'm sure I can peel them off the old agency I worked at, go in and basically pitch them something. And, you know, and then we're really not creating value. We're just distributing the same amount of value. Like, what is the total addressable market for agencies out there? Uh, I, I in, in the US, it is more in, than the UK. And I think we've talked about this before, but the... The, the amount of ad dollars going around here is much, much more than in UK and Europe combined. Um, yeah, sure. So much, so much more. So there are more, there's more need for more agencies. But I think it's, I think it's kind of like the, the, it's like the never ending cycle um, of a small agency starts, it grows and gets bigger, it gets a big client, it grows bigger, it gets absorbed, it gets bought by a big, uh, holding company they, they're left alone for three years because of rules then they get absorbed into something else everyone leaves uh the new person who's now in charge of this has to manage this they see all of the money that's getting spent and all the money that's getting pushed into shareholders pockets which they may or may not have money in involved in that they go i can do this better they peel off they take some of their clients with them and the cycle starts again it feels like I, I think there is the need for new agencies because as soon as because when you get to that big agency level, you're only you're only working with the big clients and there are small brands that need smaller agencies. I don't think there is a differentiator between them. And I think it really comes down to like you know, anyone can anyone can go into any of the media platforms and, and load campaigns. Either the the well, difference is I, like the people do you do you like working with the people? I think I think yeah I think there is probably a difference between uh, creative and media agencies when we talk about mm -hmm. this because I think mm -hmm. that um, good creatives thrive in smaller environments. That's my bias, but I just feel like the less yeah. the, the less bureaucracy and the, the less rules, the better the job, the work can be and the more edgy and um, and there are no boundaries really in terms of you know it's not like they're constrained by the rules of the four gardens necessarily or the world gardens. On the yeah. media side. Um, it's all about scale though, right? You can, yeah. yes, you and I can go into Google and launch a campaign, but the biggest agency in the world can go and launch a campaign for significantly less money because yeah. they have the, uh, the benefit of scale. I get that. I also get that there's new companies being started all the time. The U.S. Is a, has a pretty robust startup economy, and so those businesses always kind of, as they mature to a certain size, they start looking for agencies. The big ones are too expensive. So you you want something mid market or small, and that's and that's all fine. But like I just feel like it's uh, it's all been done so many times already that mm -hmm. you know any new agency that 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 gets spun up, it's really just based on someone's name. It's it's there's no there's nothing new that they're offering. Like there's no it's not like shy a day back in the day. You know like yeah. when you know they re you know we're reinventing the rules of creativity. I think I think there is there is some merit to people especially in creative when you have creative and you have strategy and they come together and they form something that's small like you said that can be you can you don't have to answer to your boss and the the regional boss and then the national boss and then the global boss and you know your idea gets diluted even before it gets to presentation stage and then you know you're able to be you have you have a 
better access to the client and you can try and you can build that trust more and you can put out good work but there are so many agencies that's so hard to break through especially at the small and mid-size where uh, you need to cut your costs in order to work with them you need to cut your terms in order to cut to work with them you have to really sacrifice to to put work out that allows you to to work and you know you're doing pro bono work you're doing stuff at yeah. half off you're just trying to get work out to win to win new business and i think that's the that's the problem with a lot of smaller agencies especially on the creative side is you're sacrificing you know you're sacrificing money and people in order to to make the money and there's not a lot of money going around uh for the most part in smaller shops so i think i mean there's always going to be new agencies and i think you out of every you know thousands one succeeds really well and and changes it um and i think if you're coming out of a big agency and you're like i can't let people i think especially right now when you're looking at agencies and how they traditionally would present creative work or media uh and how they need to be thinking now with the the landscape that we're in you know you can't go in there and present a 60 second anthem spot three print ads and a couple billboards and expect to to land an idea um you know that's suicide so anyone who is spinning out of that into a here's a here's a here's an idea that's that lives in specific places that does specific things that does to this audience and they can live separately that isn't wrapped up into an old school way of thinking yeah. you need to you need to be able to present that out yeah we'll i would that say out. that uh, i would say that for some in-depth um insights on this um folks should tune into our uh interview with angus mcadam yes um, that's a great I think, one i think i think i think that goes um quite in depth on the mindset of the creatives and kind of helps helps um, unpack this a little bit but um alex moving from uh agencies to uh, a topic that's uh, near and dear to your heart um the football club and advertising uh juggernaut arsenal oh, yeah takes away. yeah this is this is a great one good good segue arsenal professional shirt maker and sometimes football club launches fan token um for anyone who wants to get more insight into that joke just look at how many shirts arsenal re- released in the last two seasons it is astounding um so they launched this thing so arsenal partnered with sports blockchain chillers chilies chills i'm not sure i'm not i'm, I'm not into <laughs> blockchain not, not, not um, to be confused with your friendly neighborhood calorie inducing ch- coma restaurant. chilies which i haven't been to yet which i'm very much looking forward to at some point that along with applebee's and the olive garden which i heard is good breadsticks um mr mcnamara <laughs> how times have changed how times have changed um anyway back to arsenal professional shirt makers um so they launched this thing called fan tokens on the chili's blockchain socios app um and the the premise is you download the app you buy into this cryptocurrency and then exchange that cryptocurrency for a token that is an nft replica one-to-one you own it forever kind of digital thing it's a uh-huh. unique thing just to you um and you can buy as many as you want um based on the fluctuation prices of supply and demand so they're kind of creating this like currency to essentially vote for key uh what does it say um yeah key voting rights for for club 
issues and also VIP access to things. And it sounds very smart and, and great, but I don't know how many club owners and boards and executives really want the, the fans to engage with key issues that they can vote on. Um, this isn't a... This isn't a publicly owned company anymore. I, I have I have a question. I have a question. Yeah, uh, I have I so many question? questions. Uh, yeah. Um, so just just I I'll say this back to you. They are they're saying, hey, use this new fake currency to buy special things. Yeah. Why does the real currency not like? Doesn't the real currency like? Can we just buy that with? Can I just give you money instead? Can I buy the thing that you're selling with money? Well, well then, well then, like, how then how does the sponsorship work in that scenario? You can't have a cryptocurrency blockchain sponsor and then bypass that to buy tokens, like physical tokens, in real life with real currency. Ah, That's, so the so the real benefactor here is Chili's Socios blockchain balls. That the honestly that's the only thing I can think of, because I don't. I mean, this isn't Arsenal's not the only club that's doing this. They're doing it with both, um, like uh, clubs and also national teams as well. So I think Portugal I saw on that website is one of them. So like, the idea is to increase fan engagement through these unique to you tokens, and the more tokens you buy, the the more votes you can have. So you have ten tokens, you can have ten votes. I think that then now makes the votes worthless because if you want to spend a hundred whatever the however much it is to buy a hundred tokens, you can do that and th- this makes no sense. This there's there's no real re- they're engineering a need or they're engineering a a thing because they have a they now need money from sponsors. And I I imagine there's some sort of rev share. They get some yeah, money no, back I, from I, this. I, I, like, I, I I get the sponsorship part of it, but but for a fan, uh, you know the all right. Let's st- take a step back. What What is another example of there being a fake currency to buy into things you can use real money with? Frequent flyer miles or loyalty yeah. points, right? Yeah. Like, hey, earn these frequent flyer miles using your credit cards or by flying. And then in theory, you can get access to um, first class for that you couldn't afford otherwise for um, for not a lot. Yeah. Like, but, th- that, but, but that's different. But, well, it's there, but there is a parallel there because what they're saying is like, oh, this thing can grow in value, right? Like they're saying like, buy this and like the the block, like your NFT thing can grow in value and maybe yeah. like it's worth more later depending on supply and demand. My experience with frequent flyer points and any other alternative currency that existed to date is if it's controlled by a single entity, the brand, in this case, Arsenal or... Um, you know, in the case of frequent flyer miles and airline, they don't increase the value of those things. They decrease the value of those things by issuing more because it's a never yeah. ending profit um, profit machine. And then saying like, well, actually, you know what? You have 10,000 of these things. Now it costs 100,000 of these things to get the thing that uh, that you wanted. Whereas you thought yeah. it was maybe 10,000 before. So like the fans get, I mean, the fans aren't going to benefit from this. I mean, maybe the early adopters will who will sing the gospel of it. I, but. I'm not even I'm not even sure that the idea is to have a token that that you can then own and increase in value and then sell. I think I think it's been it's been positioned very poorly. I think that they rolled it out with a what's a way that we can leverage this blockchain uh, technology partner and fan engagement, and they 
smashed it together to create these tokens. And I don't think they've really thought through how does it really work other than you can vote on who, you know, what the next stadium is called. The three, the three choices that we give you. Like, I think it's going to be like that. It's not going to be who like does the manager get the sack doesn't it's not going to be who do we sign next it's some like and, and i think you're the, you're is, parallel is, isn't, to, isn't, isn't isn't the answer to that choice uh whoever pays the most money for the stadium rights versus whatever the fans choose yeah i mean yeah but it's going to be like you know we've given it to emirates and they've given you three names which one do you want it's like is it emirates, emirates stadium or emirates or, <laughs> yeah it's emirates stadium or is it the emirates stadium or is it stadium from the emirates like it's 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 a it's fake engagement and it's just like trying to create something from nothing. But your parallel to the um, to the points is you get points as rewards for spending money with them. I think if you had a parallel here, which was the more tickets you buy, the more money you spend in the stadium, the more you spend on merch, then you can accumulate those points and it becomes a token. Then I can see I can see some kind of value exchange there where you're mm. show you're spending money and you get a return and that return gives you a a voting right for some nonsense reason um the arsenal fans who are members get a token for free um so you already have that kind of fan uh engagement there but i thought i feel like it was it was announced that they were a sponsor and then very very swiftly afterwards this thing came out and i feel like even reading it this tongue-in-cheek but the the website even is like now bear with us as we explain to you how you have to download the app buy some of this fake currency exchange the fake currency for this thing and then maybe you can vote on something and then there's a disclaimer at the bottom that says the value goes up and down so if you if you lose money you lose money you can't blame us so i thought that was really it's just like weird i mean i I guess i I guess sports fandom knows no limits you know you have the fan duel business model you have the fantasy previously fantasy kind of concepts you had the playing player cards before then it's just like all in the name of fan engagement but really also all in the name of just taking taking money out of the taking money from fans taking money from fans um speaking on speaking of sports uh sponsorships um yeah the second league after the NBA to go with patches on their jerseys um, will be the NHL. They announced that they're launching um, sponsored branded patches this coming season. Um, they probably looked at the NBA and were like, ooh, that's money on the table. <laughs> There's money. Yeah, they also looked at their stands that were empty for most of the season. Like, well, there is no money there. Um, so they're, so they're, they're doing this. And by some estimates... Uh, this may bring as much as 150 to 300 million dollars in annual sponsorship revenue. Obviously, the NHL is not as popular as the NBA, um, so most teams will probably see low single-digit millions. Versus, you know, like some of the highest-profile teams will, you know, from what I've read, will probably see, you know, close to 20 million dollars in annual revenue from these sponsorships. Um, I. I look at this and I don't mind it so much. They actually experimented with having stickers on their helmets um, this past season. I don't know that this gives a brand any really additional value, um, you know, but it's not like in Europe yet where the yes. brand's logo takes the primary spot on the jersey. Yep. And then uh, the <laughs> and yeah. then the the, the team's logo is, is kind of relegated to to the top left corner. Here it's the other way around. But... I do feel like that was something that was maybe 
in in the overly commercialized um, landscape of American professional sports, uh, where everything is done in the name of the dollar, the only pure yeah. thing that was remaining was the jersey that only had the team's logo and the player's name, unlike in Europe and elsewhere in the world where it was the other way around. And I feel like now they're sort of uh, letting that go. Yeah, I'm and, wearing a uh, I'm wearing a Portland Timbers shirt right now, and I'm showing off the massive Alaska Airlines on the front and the the side patch from TikTok, um, and it's and it's something that I hadn't really thought about because I'd grown up with, you know, O2 on your shirt or Vodafone or Sharp or Chang beer, and it was like Carlsberg, and it was it was the normal thing to have and i and i would and i remember not really realizing on the you know nfl didn't have these massive sponsorships and the nba one was really interesting when they have the the team logo in the in the center of the jersey and they would change that depending on you know they have the city city special they have the lunar new year special they've got different ways they can express the brand on the shirt which i thought was really nice so yeah you know it's massive real estate for the slower paced leagues i remember reading in that article you shared was nhl you your the camera's further back and it's much faster um there are close-ups of course on the bench when they have a fight when they score a goal when when there's breaks in play but it's not like football you know soccer football or american football or nba where there are natural where there's a slower paced um slower paced game with a lot more focus on individual players um but yeah it's a money maker it's you know you can sell the what is that the nba they've just increased the size of the logo and now charging more for it um which i thought was really interesting uh, but, but that's but that's that, that that's it that's that's going to be the creep right like until yeah. until what like they, they they're hooked on that revenue stream now and especially because the ticketing revenue is depressed so what what's the force that's going to stop them from eventually having the sponsor logo be the biggest logo and the team logo be the smallest logo you know it's um nothing it's, it's, i mean not even fans can stop that if you can make money from it and then that money gets you a better player that can take you further in the playoffs. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure every fan would sacrifice. What if, what, what, what if the fans bought some Chili's tokens? Do you think they could have a right to? <laughs> Maybe. To, to, I was I was also reading um one the Monumental Sports Group, which owns the Wizards, Washington, Washington like four of the Washington teams. Um, they were talking about doing a package deal where uh, someone could sponsor all four teams as like the patch sponsor. So, you know, if you're looking at, at it from a business point of view, you can sponsor four teams for $12 million a season or something like that. You know, you've got massive exposure for very hardcore fans um, where you can you can be very, you know, you're, you're basically be in their living room for most of the most of the year, depending on the on the sports that they're watching. Um but I thought it was really interesting for, for them where you've got like four teams in one city. How does it work when you've got four teams of different cities? Like, let's take the Cronkies, for example, uh, your favorite and my favorite sports gazillionaire um, who ruined teams. Um, taking, you know, the Rams and the D- Denver football team and he has another one. I can't remember which one. The Avalanche, the Avalanche was one of them. 
Was the other one? Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, but the they're nuggets, different. The Nuggets, the Avalanche, yeah. Yeah, that's it. The Nuggets. Um, and then you have uh, one, you know, you don't really get the cohesion from different cities with the same sponsor. Not that you can't do that, but I was really liked how they packaged it up very much from a, a sponsorship point of view of buy four of it. It's going to cost you more money, but in the long run, it's better than you buy it all in one go than sponsor all four of them separate. Yeah, but when, my, my question would be like, couldn't I just spend that $12 million in in a different way and, and create more stickiness with the fans? I don't know. I guess it's not like, I think I can get more more exposure with the with the 12 million bucks than purely having a small patch on a on a jersey. Like I could buy the rights, naming rights to a stadium, for instance, if they're available, right? Or I can just, you know, surround surround you with with advertising in general but i think it's probably like a feeling of loyalty to the team like it's a shared loyalty you know yeah. i think it works for maybe hometown brands um or brands that have a big presence in that city um i don't think you can be just a general like national brand and uh, and do that and 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 hope to kind of get that affinity like i think if someone in say portland not someone. If Coors Light decided to sponsor the team in Portland, I don't think they would generate a ton of goodwill. Like, there's enough good beer in Portland that no one's going to really say, like, oh, yeah. man, you know, Coors Light. <laughs> that's, that's my beer now. Yeah. Um, no, I, I mean, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, you could spend... You could, but it depends what kind of brand you are. You know, if you're Staples, you're sponsoring the Staples Center, Quicken Loans Arena. You've got, you know... $12 million on four teams for a patch is not a lot of money if you're spending 500 plus a year on on other you know activations so you know I think it's it, it's it's an inter- it's an interesting one I mean but I think sports fans especially when it comes to jerseys or uniforms I guess as you call them here sometimes um, the Shit. the sponsor on them becomes part of the icon of the club like you can't think of a of a of a steven gerrard liverpool team without seeing carlsberg you can't see the arsenal invincible team without the o2 you can't think of like yeah. david beckham yeah, you know. like and you ha- and then you be and then you have an affinity with the brand and then suddenly the brand is now part of your club culture and but, as a team uh, Al- you can you can buy it alex i i think i think that's I think that's where it's maybe there, this is a separate discussion, but I think that's where culturally um, there might have been um, a difference between the U.S. And, and the U.K. Where, like you said, in the U.K. you grew up with this, but when sponsors end their uh, relationship with the team, like has been the case with Manchester United, like where yeah. they went from like Vodafone to Chevy to AIG, you know, I don't think that anyway. Like those were commercial relationships, and everyone everyone understood this. In the U.S., and I'll just give you an example of the city where I follow my sports, St. Louis. Um, back in the day, every league was very skittish about naming corporate naming rights. I'm talking about like the 60s, the 70s. Um, it wasn't until I think, you know, correct me, cor- someone can correct me, but I don't think it, w- it wasn't until around the 80s when um, companies started putting their names on stadiums. Um, and that became OK because everything prior to that was, you know, the Mile High Stadium or things like this. Um, Anyway, so the big employer in or the big brand in St. Louis was and is Anheuser-Busch, the maker of Budweiser. So the uh, the, the owners of, of, of Anheuser-Busch uh, owned the Cardinals, the St. Louis baseball team. And they wanted to they built a stadium and they wanted to call it Bush Stadium um, and for their beer, which at the time, the most you know one of their beers was Bush. Um, they couldn't. 
Actually, I think they wanted to call them like Budweiser Field. It's probably what they wanted to call. They couldn't do that. So the only way they could put their name on the stadium, a brand's name, was to use their last name. So they used their last name, which is Bush, um, to put it on the stadium. And there was a strong co correlation between Bush beer because of that and the team. Um, and 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 fans really to this day ref like know that beer brand, even though it's completely forgotten at this point by yeah. everyone else because of that correlation. And then the same thing happened with the hockey team where it was owned by Purina, which everyone knows the Purina, Rolson Purina family. They're owned by Nestle now, I think. But the they couldn't put their name on the arena. They weren't allowed to. It was called the uh, whatever, the St. Louis Arena or something. But everyone knew it as the Checker Dome because the Purina logo is the Checkers. And yeah. the colloquial name for it for generations was the Checker Dome. Even to this day, people refer to it as that. And there was a lot of goodwill towards Purina as the brand. And people came up with that analogy themselves. And so, f like, by having that rule or at least having that separation of, like, corporate identity and corporate ownership actually somehow made a very strong bond happen between the, the city and the brand. Um, I think that's uh, as we as we move into these more, like, commercially minded uh, deals, I, I don't think they're going to replicate that. No, I no, I don't think so. I don't think anyone who is an Arsenal fan flies Emirates, even though that's the name of the stadium. And a lot of people still call it the Grove. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't think so. But if, if yeah. you can get in front of a bunch of people who are diehard fans with, you know, Chime are now the shirt sponsors of the Nuggets. Are they the Nuggets. I don't know. Something well, it's like it's also probably for it's more oriented towards TV, right? People watch the games yeah. on TV. They see Chime, Emirates, whoever, and uh, and that gets you that exposure. So, anyway, I think there's probably a different um, episode we do on corporate sponsorships in sports, and I think that'd be a fascinating the one Mavericks. to dive into. That's kind what of it was the Mavericks. Pick Sorry, out the you know pick pick up pick 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 this apart further, but um, I know where you stand uh, and. Uh, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what uh, what Arsenal does uh, with all these things and the NHL does with all these things, and we'll uh, we'll discuss it some more. But um, I think this wraps up our podcast because uh, we ran out of time, frankly. We have yep. more things to cover on our next ad talk, but uh, in the meantime, it was a pleasure talking to you. Pleasure. Chat soon.